I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Kendra Kruger. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, August 12th, 2014. Coming up, we learn from biologist Jessica Metcalf about the mystery of the missing greenback cutthroat trout and its future. And we talk with neurologist Josh Turknet, who has a simple cure for migraine headaches that based on evolutionary biology. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. A lot of people who are at risk for heart attack or stroke have to take blood thinners like Coumadin to reduce their risk of life-threatening clots. But these drugs can put you at risk for serious bleeding too. Blood clots can be good when they prevent or stop bleeding, but they can cause a stroke, heart attack, deep vein thrombosis, or pulmonary embolism. Typical blood thinners must be given orally so they can be metabolized by the liver to work. This transports them throughout the body, so bleeding can occur anywhere. But now there is a new treatment. Researchers from Washington University in St. Louis did a little genetic tinkering with an enzyme to make it search out and destroy a specific protein in the blood. This protein is key to clot formation. Because it's an enzyme, it can be injected at a clot site, meaning it works locally so the dispersal isn't a problem. And it's more concentrated because it's injected where the clot is and it can act more rapidly and effectively. Although it hasn't been tested in humans, the enzyme worked much better in animals than the currently available blood thinning drugs. When the enzyme was tested on dogs with clots in their hearts, it reduced the clot size by 81% without increasing the time it took for a wound to stop bleeding. It was John Paul Getty who said, Money is like manure. You have to spread it around or it smells. According to the American Chemical Society, money really does have a specific smell, and especially when there's a lot of it, as in laundered drug money in big, hidden bundles getting smuggled into Mexico. Currently, U.S. border guards look for this money manually or with dogs that are trained to sniff for it. To provide more tools, researchers at the American Chemical Society are designing a portable bulk currency detection system calibrated to the specific gases emitted by U.S. paper currency. Their goal will be a probe that guards can swiftly pass over clothing or into baggage. If the probe detects a high intensity of those chemicals, it will sound the warning. In this way, the designers hope that they'll help catch more of the $30 billion getting smuggled across the border every year, all by following the smell of money. The tractor beams of sci-fi fame are now one step closer to reality. Scientists at the Australian National University have discovered a way to create a water-based tractor beam, allowing them to move a floating object in any direction they want. The concept is incredibly simple, and the researchers themselves say they can't believe no one else has thought of it before. It works by generating a three-dimensional wave in water using a vertically moving plunger. This wave then creates currents on the surface of the water that can push or pull an object. So far, the group has been able to move a ping-pong ball around by varying the amplitude and the frequency of the wave, but also by playing with different shapes used for the plunger that mechanically generates the wave. The leading scientist said there's still no mathematical theory to explain this phenomenon, 
but anyone could easily reproduce it in their own bathtub. Results were published online this week in Nature Physics. And for the science calendar, there are two Café Scientifiques this week. At the Boulder Café Sci tonight at 6 p.m. at the Outlook Hotel, Dr. Chris Laurie will be discussing the role of certain friendly microbes in our evolving immune systems. Humans co-evolved with environmental microorganisms that, because they were abundant and harmless, induced immune tolerance. Since the advent of increased hygiene in urban civilizations, exposure to these microorganisms has been dramatically decreased, and it has been proposed that the relative absence of these organisms, termed old friends, has contributed to an epidemic of inflammatory disease and other disorders. That is 6 p.m. tonight at the Boulder Outlook Hotel. And at the Denver Cafe Sci, too, tomorrow night, Dr. Jacob Gump will give a presentation called Gene Therapy. What happened to it? And what is happening to it now? Dr. Gump will give a brief history of gene therapy, the challenges gene therapy has overcome, and the upcoming challenges and promises in the future. That is tomorrow, Wednesday night at Brooklyn's at the Pepsi Center, 901 Aurora Parkway, directly across from the Aurora campus in Denver. The Cafe Sci 2 starts at 6.30 p.m., and food and drink are available throughout the evening. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. Colorado has always been a state of nature lovers, which is why, in the era of our great-grandfathers, citizens even designated an official state fish. It's the greenback cutthroat trout that thrived in the mountain streams above Boulder and Denver. Colorado wildlife officials had long assumed that greenback cutthroat trout still live in our mountain streams. The problem is... They were wrong. Through a complex set of Sherlock Holmes investigations, scientists at CU Boulder figured out a fish switch decades ago meant greenback cutthroat trout were missing from our streams and possibly extinct. Since then, we have much better news about the fish that almost got away. For more, here's How on Earth's Shelley Schlender speaking with CU Boulder biologist Jessica Metcalf. A cutthroat trout is a very beautiful spotted fish, and the greenback cutthroat trout actually kind of has a greenish back. And in general, the cutthroat trout species is called that because of the orange slash that goes across their throat. So it looks like they've had a cutthroat. And that's what's especially different between them and a rainbow trout, because a rainbow trout doesn't have that necklace of orange around its throat. Exactly. And then also in general, a lot of cutthroat trout, they have bigger spots and fewer spots than a rainbow trout, which has a lot of tiny spots. It's such a handsome fish that Coloradans decided this should be the state fish. Right. And then we thought we had a lot of them, but we really didn't. We have a number of different subspecies of cutthroat trout in Colorado. And we thought that the ones that we were finding in these high alpine lakes on the eastern slope, so in the South Platte drainage and Arkansas River drainage, we thought they were greenback because that's what would make sense, right? Well, it turns out that actually 
humans did so much fish propagation and stocking in the mid-1900s that we actually just replaced a bunch of cutthroat trout from the western slope. When European settlers had first shown up, they had driven the greenback close to the brink of extinction, basically. Then we were left with, oh, okay, so we, we assume these fish that were here now, when we went and sampled in the early 2000s, were greenback cutthroat trout. But they weren't. Coloradans had fallen in love with this greenback cutthroat trout, and it was based on the one that was on the eastern slope. So since some looked like greenback cutthroat trout on the eastern slope, people naturally assumed they were. But when you did DNA analysis, they weren't anymore. They were, they were an imposter or a substitute, I guess, in a substitute because the fish didn't do it. It was us. Exactly. So first, let's talk about how we figured out it was gone. We figured out it was gone because we went back to the museum samples from about the mid-1800s to the late-1800s, and we sampled them, and we were able to get little tiny pieces of DNA out of them. But we were able to get enough to tell us that, hey, the fish that are here now are not the fish that were here back then. So you found this out, and you couldn't find any of the fish that used to be there back then here now on the eastern slope. What did you do? Well, we surveyed as many modern populations as we could, and what we found is that there was one population of this greenback cutthroat trout left. It was down by Colorado Springs. So you found it. You found the original state fish down near Colorado Springs. We call it the Bear Creek population. It was discovered in Bear Creek near Colorado Springs, and it does look fairly different than other cutthroat trout strains that we have in and around Colorado. Biologists had noticed this for a while, and they closed it to fishing because they could tell it was unique, but they didn't know what it was. It wasn't until we looked at these museum samples and got the DNA out that we were able to match them and say, you know what, that is a unique population, and that's our native cutthroat trout to the Denver-Boulder South Platte Front Range area. And it happens to be the state fish, this one that people had forgotten what it looks like. Yep. Maybe our grandfather's or grandfather's grandfather might have known what it looks like, but most people in Colorado hadn't seen it. What do you think about the benefit to mankind of refinding a fish that got away? As a conservation geneticist, I think this is important because this cutthroat trout subspecies has really unique genetics. So it's a very unique pocket of biodiversity. And generally, we try to conserve biodiversity on this planet. That's a major goal of conservation genetics. For other people, you might be a fly fisherman. This is a unique species that you haven't seen before. You haven't been able to fish before. And one of the goals, restoration goals, is to have enough populations of greenback cutthroat trout to open it up to fishing. You have this fish now. Is there a chance that this fish fits an environmental niche? So this fish probably evolved on the eastern slope of the Continental Divide for a half a million years as the only cutthroat trout in the South Platte. You know, it's something we need to study is the ecology of this fish and how it's unique. How's it doing? It's doing well. It managed to, to, to survive in a small stream up by Colorado Springs for over 100 years. And we released it on Friday back to the South Platte in a high alpine lake. They seem to be doing well. So. Well, that's nice news, except for the fact that here in Boulder County, there's the Prebles Jumping Mouse versus the European regular mouse. And the prebles is the one that is the native mouse. But when people catch mice in their homes, in live traps, and feel sorry for them, 
and let them out in the meadows in Boulder open space, what they're doing is they're killing the native mouse because the European mouse is more robust and can live more successfully in those areas. Could it be that this green cutthroat trout that is the original won't be able to fare as well as the substitutes that we've brought in? Because they can live well in high alpine, really high lakes and streams, we generally put them above barriers such as waterfalls so the non-natives can't get to them. So, for example, Zimmerman Lake, where the greenback cutthroat trout was just released in the South Platte, has no other fish that can access the lake. Can you try fish head-to-head or fin-to-fin to see how they would compete against the newcomers? There is no plan for that now, and we know from sort of historic observations and ecology studies that generally cutthroat trout don't fare well in the lower waters when they're in competition with non-natives such as rainbow trout, brown trout, or brook trout. Okay, so you already know that it's best to keep them off to themselves. Right, especially for these cutthroat trout that lived in high alpine areas, there generally weren't other fish or there weren't very many other fish species around them. Where can people go if they want to see a picture of this real state fish of Colorado that you found? To the internet, where we have some pictures of the greenback cutthroat trout. But hopefully soon, fishermen will be able to fish for this species. Thanks to Shelley Schlender for that report. That was CU Boulder biologist Jessica Metcalf talking about the official fish of Colorado, the greenback cutthroat trout. You'll find a link to the photos she mentions on our website, howonearthradio.org. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Kendra Kruger. One of the most painful conditions to suffer through is a migraine headache. Sometimes these headaches begin with strange visual auras or loss of vision. Sometimes they're accompanied by nausea. Most of all, they're head-splitting pain. Interestingly, these headaches are rare among the world's few remaining hunter-gatherer populations. In contrast, they're common in modern Western life. Roughly 10% of Americans have suffered from a migraine headache. One of the people who used to suffer from them frequently is a medical doctor with an advanced degree in neurology. He's Dr. Josh Turknet. Dr. Turknet used to get migraines 60 times a year on average. That's over one a week. As a board-certified neurologist, Turknet treated the migraines of his clients and his own migraines in typical medical ways urging people to drink enough water, get enough sleep, avoid too much stress, try to figure out triggers such as maybe food smells or other things, and take strong medications when the headaches got unbearable. For Turknet, his whole life changed dramatically when he made a basic lifestyle change that he believes many neurologists and migraine sufferers overlook. In his own case, his change meant that the number of migraines he suffers these days has gone from around 60 headaches a year down to only two or three. While his approach is controversial, Turknet believes it could help many, perhaps most, migraine sufferers. How on Earth, Shelley Schlender caught up with Turknet this weekend at the Ancestral Health Symposium in Berkeley, California, where Turknet was a speaker. 
Up next, here's neurologist and former big-time migraine sufferer, Josh Turknett. I started having migraines when I was a kid, and they slowly got worse as I became an adult to where I was having about 60 migraine headaches a year, or at least 60 that required prescription medication to get rid of. How did you inadvertently get rid of these migraines? Back in 2010, I decided to sort of change my diet just because I felt like this was the better way to be, to be healthy, adopt this sort of an ancestral eating framework no thought whatsoever that they would have an impact on my migraines and then lo and behold weeks went by and I realized I wasn't having any more headaches and I first thought it couldn't be true and then more weeks went by and I wasn't having any headaches and I thought oh my gosh I cannot believe this was this easy all along and never known about it. What was your typical lunch like before? My typical lunch probably was a sandwich of some sort followed by a coke something I could eat quickly at work. How about a dinner? What's a typical dinner you used to eat? A typical dinner, you know, maybe uh, hamburgers or... My wife is a cook, and she's a pretty good cook. So we didn't probably eat terribly unhealthy before I switched over, at least by the conventional standards. But we had bread probably with every meal. For me, I was a fairly big consumer of soft drinks, a couple of Cokes at least a day. What made you interested in changing how you ate? I got roped into the paleo world after reading a blog by Kurt Harris, who's a, a physician, and then ended up getting turned on to Gary Taubes' book, Good Calories, Bad Calories. From there, I went into a bunch of other stuff, you know, basic research and had a full-scale descent into the world of nutrition. I had too much cognitive dissonance to eat the way I was eating and be reading about this, so that's why I eventually changed my diet. Now, when you changed your diet, you got rid of Coca-Cola that's right. and also bread, what other changes did you make? Because a full paleo diet, according to someone like Lauren Cordain, right. is no dairy, no beans, no white potatoes. Initially, I cut out all gluten grains, anything with added sugar, cut out uh, vegetable and seed oils, cut out all low-fat dairy, still consumed some high-fat dairy, Greek yogurt, and so forth. So you'll still eat a high-fat or a normal-fat dairy, but do you eat a lot of cheese and dairy or just a little bit? Probably just a little bit. And you don't eat any more breads that are grain-based breads, basically. No corn. You eat a low-carb diet at this point. Fairly low-carb diet. I do eat white potatoes and sweet potatoes these days. And I do find that if I go too low-carb, I'm already thin to begin with. Um, <laughs> I almost disappear. So so I keep a little bit of starch in my diet to keep my weight up. But in general, you'd follow a fairly full paleo diet and no more sodas. Absolutely, no more sodas. No, I haven't touched one since I changed back in 2010. You said that you have had some migraine headaches and one happened when you had an anniversary dinner. What did you eat for that dinner? So I was completely cheated, had bread before the meal, I had full desserts. I threw caution to the wind and ate whatever I wanted and then paid a big price for it later. What does a migraine headache feel like? Uh, sometimes with patients give the analogy that sort of if you imagine the high from a drug of abuse like heroin, you know, turning on all your pleasure centers at one time, imagine turning on all the pain centers in the cranium at one time, and that's about the best you can get, you know. It's just your entire head hurting more than you ever thought anything could hurt. So you've gone from 60 or so incidences where you've had to take medication a right. year for migraine to maybe one or two or three where you can generally track it to, darn, I really did eat something. Right. Now one of the nice things about making the change is when I do get one now, I know exactly where it came from. 
yeah, and I've gotten more sophisticated in knowing how I can, if I want to cheat, <laughs> you know, how I can, how I can get away with it better. Do you think that the majority of people who have migraines may be suffering for the same reason, or do you think you're unusual in your response to diet? By and large, the majority of migraines are suffering for the same reason. We've missed the impact of the standard Western diet as a whole as sort of always keeping people so close to the migraine threshold that it only takes a little bit to tip them over the edge. We figured out what those little pieces to tip them over the edge were, but we ignored the fact that the standard diet was the thing that was bringing them so close to begin with. You've mentioned the hypothalamus. Can you explain a bit about that and whether other researchers are saying, of course you're right or not? <laughs> There's been a lot of research or interest in trying to figure out where in the brain migraines begin. I think you can build the strongest case for sure that it's the hypothalamus. If we consider migraines as a disease of civilization, so something that manifests in the context of modern diets and lifestyles, and then we look to the brain. The hypothalamus is probably the place in the brain that bears the, the biggest sort of change or that's, that's been um, taxed the most by our modern diets because it's tasked with trying to maintain stable internal bodily conditions. But the environment to which it adapted to do so is completely different than the one we live in today. So it's being asked to maintain this stability inside of us, but this is not the environment that it adapted to do it in. So it's over-challenged and, in my theory, too, probably uh, inflamed which is the ultimate source of migraines. How much would you say that it's the carbohydrate load and how much is it the kind of foods that cause inflammations? Just in my clinical experience, I think probably the carbohydrate load or variations in energy homeostasis, so the rapid swings in blood sugar and going from high to low to high to low you know, throughout the course of the day, which is where most people are at, is probably the biggest thing that sets the stage or that brings people close to the threshold. And then you add in systemic inflammation to that, and you just lower that threshold even further. Where do you try to keep your blood sugars? I don't monitor them, but I try to keep, I mean, I don't know, I would say 70 to 80, you know, the 80 range baseline. How much openness is there in the neurology community to what you're saying? I think there's openness in general to any ideas when it comes to migraines simply because they're so hard to treat. And so people are willing to kind of go outside the bounds of normal practice because we know that our normal practice is insufficient right now. And I think that you can build a strong evidence-based case for why this would work. So I think that if you present it correctly, I think most neurologists are receptive to the idea. Hopefully it's just a matter of spreading the word so that more of them are willing to give it a try. Thanks to Shelley for that report. Josh Turknet is a board-certified neurologist. He has a blog now he calls My Migraine Miracle. My Migraine Miracle is also the title of his new book, which goes into the science of why he believes an ancestral diet and lifestyle can make dramatic differences for a migraine sufferer. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. This week's show was produced and engineered by me, Joel Parker. Additional contributions by Shelley Schlender and Beth Bennett. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Nortech Collective. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. 
For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Kendra Kruger. And I'm Joel Parker.